Welcome to the Public Morality. If I said critical race theory, what comes to mind? Historical revision that places white people in the crosshairs of racial antipathy? Or a vital method that looks honestly at the American narrative? Like most things American, the truth probably lies hidden between the aforementioned polarities. But critical race theory has made an obtrusive entrance in the public discourse, and its definition runs a corresponding course with one's political affiliation. How is it this 40-year legal theory has been transformed into a doctrine that threatens the fundamental orthodoxy of America? To discuss critical race theory, I'm joined by Sumi Cho. A law professor for 20 years, Cho is currently Director of Strategic Initiatives at the African American Policy Forum. Professor Cho, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by having you respond uh, to a quote uh, from Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Um, he said recently, America's, uh, he's talking about critical race theory, uh, America's fundamentally racist, that all white people are racist, and that all the whites and blacks hate each other, and, ha- and have to hate each other. That's how he describes critical race theory. I'm only, I want to start by having you give you an opportunity for you to describe critical race theory. Uh, well, first, uh, thank you for that question. And let me point out that I understand Ted Cruz actually knows very, very well that that is not critical race theory. In fact, I understand he was classmates with with Kimberly Crenshaw, who's one of the founders of critical race theory. And so we'll be talking about uh, later, I'm sure, about the motives behind this CRT mm-hmm. disinformation campaign. But let me just start by saying that before I joined the African American Policy Forum as the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Truth Be Told campaign to actually you know, talk about the place of truth in our history and in racial justice education, I was actually a professor of law for 25 years where I taught critical race theory. And I think my uh, role there and the role of many of the founders of critical race theory is to have a kind of high level discussion among uh, law students and law scholars really trying to get at the central contradiction of U.S. society. And that is, how is it after uh, centuries and then after decades following formal equality and the announcement of colorblind principles that we still have such durable and visible racial and social inequality in our society? And what do we need to do, starting with the law, uh, to dismantle it? So that's a very short way of describing critical race theory as a sort of shared common inquiry across uh, individual scholars. Uh, now, when we take the the, the uh, definition of critical race theory outside uh, of scholars, it, it seems in our public discourse, and there's the key word, our public discourse, that it is def- Critical race theory is defined largely by who is invoking it, whether in support or opposition. How how do you account for that? Well, I think that what we're talking about is the original project was to think about the ways in which uh, racial inequality is created and perpetuated through law on society. And then there were many fellow travelers who picked it up in the uh, in society part of it. 
uh, specifically uh, people who are working to diversify their workplaces, people who are working in government, uh, people who are working in uh, other parts of higher ed, especially in uh, the field of education and teachers in K through 12, particularly after the George Floyd protests thought, you know what? There is something to discussing, not just individual levels of racism, but systemic racism and the way that it permeates our society. And this is what our students want to talk about. And we should prepare them for the day that they might go to college and to law school and graduate school for these more advanced conversations. Uh, Staying with that for just a moment, you know, from, from a legal scholarly position. Could you give us an example of how might a critical race theory conversation would go? Or how would you present one uh, when you were teaching critical race theory? Actually, it's like a very detailed history class. And for me, it's gratifying because it's history that I never learned K through 12 college or or law school. And so I felt like, wow, we are really uneducated about the reality of Um, our nation and the legal system that young lawyers and professionals are going to enter into, you know, that the word slavery never appears, you know, in the Constitution, uh, but the institution is referred to vaguely, you know, in the references to three-fifths of a person. Uh, You know, it is there when we have these big uh, notions about what is our nation uh, and what is citizenship and who belongs and who doesn't belong. Uh, The Chinese Exclusion Act, which essentially had a racial bar to Chinese uh, immigrating to the US. Uh, That's then extended to Japanese in the 1917 Gentlemen's Agreement and by virtue of Japanese uh, occupation of Korea to Koreans, uh, to South Asians in the Bard Zone Act. Um, you know, in terms of immigration uh, bar on the basis of race. We have citizenship cases that say that uh, under the 1790 naturalization law, only whites uh, can be citizens. You know, that's challenged by Japanese who are told that they are not white because they're not Caucasian uh, in the early 20th century. And then a clever South Asian plaintiff, Bagatsin Thind, said, well, you know, the scientists of the day consider South Asians to be white. So under your prior precedent, uh, I should be admitted to citizenship. Uh, And yet they came back and said, no, uh, you are not white by the common man's understanding. So these are just some basic explanations of the ways in which law creates and perpetuates um, racial disadvantage and inequality. Uh, that is enduring, you know, especially when they played out citizenship requirements uh, to own property, for example, in uh, many of the Western states. Uh, So these are just a few examples uh, that I teach in my class. Okay. All right, Professor. Uh, With with that said, let's assume or suppose that I am a high school instructor uh, and I offered the following about slavery, and I'd like to get, get, get your take on the other side. Let's just say I say that, that slavery, that the cause of the Civil War was not slavery, and but the secession was the reason for slavery, but the reason for secession um, uh, was slavery supported by 7-Eleven Articles of Secession along with Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens' infamous uh, cornerstone speech 
And so those, uh, the tout of the preservation of slavery, and those are the reasons for the Civil War. Would that be invoking critical race theory, revisionist history, or merely adding some context to the uh, existing historical narrative? Well, I think that you're actually diving into a lot of uh, deep debates among historians in terms of talking about how is it that we grapple with and understand and talk about some of these key episodes in the sort of historiography and how professionals write and talk about history. And so on the one side, there's the sort of lost cause narrative that seeks to um, essentially state, you know, that this wasn't about uh, racial subjugation and slavery whatsoever, but it was about these more lofty ideals and principles that, and about respecting Southern culture and states' rights, et cetera, uh, that we need to uphold and defend as a sort of victim narrative, not unlike the sort of victim narrative that uh, they uh, promulgated uh, in um, you know, the Weimar Republic after losing uh, World War One right, in terms of uh, kind of stabbed in your back mythology that was promoted, you know, among um, members of fashioning ent- fascist entities. Uh, is the 1619 Project, as you understand it, critical race theory? Because that's often conflated with in, in the public discourse. Well, thank you for that question, because... I think that Christopher Rufo, who was seen as the uh, Manhattan Institute right-wing think tank architect of many of these attacks, has made it very plain in his public tweets and comments that this is a campaign. He doesn't really know what critical race theory is, and he doesn't really care because he just seeks to take every single cultural insanity that he can find out there and put it within the umbrella of critical race theory so that we know that it's not some sort of sober scholarly analysis analysis uh, or even fair reading of what critical race theory is, but it's motivated in large part by an agenda that's been embraced by former President Trump and the GOP party. And if you look to the sort of um, admission of this in last week's uh, news articles that even former uh, Trump advisor Steve Bannon admitted that yes, we see this issue as the Tea Party to the 10th power. We need this in order to win back the white suburban moms that we lost in the last election. And that's what all of these attacks are really about. They're not about critical race theory and its content whatsoever. So whether it is or is not about the 1619 Project or whether it is or is not about what goes on in DEI trainings or whether it is or is not about what goes on in specific classroom discussions, that is the bottom line, that the other side and the people promoting this discourse do not believe in a robust multiracial democracy. They seek to stamp that out and and to, in order to do that, in terms of the popularity of the racial reckoning and uh, racial awareness last fall post-George Floyd that many teachers embraced, they realized that they had to resort to the oldest trick in the book, racial fear-mongering, in hopes that they could scare enough white suburban moms to think that critical race theory is being used to brand your white child as a racist and all children of color as hapless victims, and nothing could be further from the truth. So, Professor Cho, are are you aware of any school districts that are mounting a campaign to 
uh, have critical race theory, as you understand it, into their history curriculum? You know, I think that the the answer to that question um, depends upon how you're defining critical race theory, which the opposition, as I mentioned, in terms of their motive and method is trying to create a very large umbrella to even uh, in their toolkits for parents, try to identify things like social emotional learning as critical race theory and very abstract ideas, you know, like affinity groups. So that if you see any of these things and comb through it, then that's all critical race theory. That broad definition of critical race theory will certainly all kinds of school districts and uh, teachers that have been trying to answer real life questions that their students are raising and want to talk about uh, are going to talk about, in short, systemic racism, right? So to the extent that the 1619 Project actually grapples you know, with our difficult past and history and the role of systemic uh, racism in our country, there are continuities with the critical race theory project. But if you were to ask critical race theorists if those are identical or one of the same, as you, you know, if you recall my opening around what's the kind of common inquiry, it's much more field specific, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So when you see state legislatures, uh, taking action allegedly against critical race theory to place parameters on how race is discussed. Um, as a law professor, well, what, what, what goes through your mind? Well, what goes through my mind is just to think about the ways in which we saw after 1954's historic watershed Brown versus Board of Education law, which uh, essentially said that there shall not uh, be segregation in our public schools, that there was a massive resistance that immediately followed, in which uh, basically uh, there was a state by state campaign to resist the implementation of Brown. And so we saw a number of states back then create a series of copycat laws in terms of um, uh, transforming all deliberate speed to basically no speed whatsoever, you know, with like one greater year plans or uh, other types of devices that they would use to stall or prevent um, desegregation, right? The conversion through vouchers, you know, to transform public schools into private schools. So I think that we've seen this before And so it is very familiar in terms of, you know, when there is a federal loss like there was when Biden um, revoked the Trump EO executive order 13950 when he became president, then the move uh, goes to the states. And it's very much in keeping with a strategy to try to win back Congress by working through the school board level. I mean, you've touched on this earlier, but I'd really like to have you really hone in on your response when those hold that critical race theory is a threat to America's um, currently held historical canon? Uh, Well, I think that in order for um, you to understand the logic, I think that we have to understand what is going on here with respect to the big lie. So we've got to start with the first big lie that we saw uh, with the narrative that Biden stole the 2020 election and that Trump actually won 
and he is president. And we saw how that played out with the January 6th Capitol riots. And I want to point out that the subtext to the big lie there is that Black people in particular were key to this stolen election, especially in battleground states, Black and brown people, and do not deserve to be included in American democracy. We now have the next big lie that after the uh, really embarrassment and humiliation of the Capitol riots that was globally condemned, uh, we see the next big lie that um, is circulating is that CRT is threatening to brand all white children as racists, right? And the subtext there is black people and allies are pushing for racial and social justice to seek a violent overthrow of the American public and therefore must be excluded from American democracy. So these are very um, scary ideas about excluding a broad swath uh, of Americans uh, to a very narrow conception uh, that's uh, racially bounded in terms of who can and cannot participate. And we see that, for example, with voter restriction laws and the Supreme Court upholding today voter restriction laws in Arizona in a 6-3 vote that was just handed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it that a, a um, academic, a- academic theory uh, uh, construct that that's been around since you know almost since disco, just in the 21st century is resurrected as some um, demonic Marxist um, theory that um, all people should be afraid of. I mean, in a, I mean, th- th- they just pull critical race theory out of a hat. I mean, how how did, this has been around for four decades? So how how did this happen now? Well, you know, I mean, if you go back to Christopher Rufo, who was a um, former candidate for Seattle uh, City Council and had a lot of time on his hands after he um, withdrew from that candidacy on a campaign, uh, essentially uh, saying on the homeless that we need less compassion and more law enforcement. And so he devised, you know, this Christopher Rufo theory, as Joy Reid put it, um, to uh, be able to assemble uh, every negative thing under one umbrella term. And why critical race theory uh, was useful to him is because it invokes a lot of fears, you know, so that you can tag on to, uh, let's say, uh, red baiting fears uh, with the critical label. Uh, And then you can also do race baiting with the race label and you can also engage in anti-intellectualism with the theory label. And so it sort of um, discursively provided this unique vehicle to pull together all of these uh, fear-mongering strategies under one term. Uh, would, would you also add to that, uh, your last answer, the fact that this is something, uh, critical race theory being something that requires some nuance and critical thinking and much of our public discourse does not require nuance and critical thinking. Well, definitely. I think that um, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw um, defined it very well in her introduction to critical race theory in a volume that was published uh, decades 
go that is still a mainstay. But in her introduction, you know, she had the nuance to talk about critical race theory as a project had twin goals. It was trying to intervene into the existing civil rights scholarship that uh, had the sort of liberal narrative that eventually the arc towards, you know, justice, you know, is eventually going to be um, achieved, right? That it's slow, but it bends towards justice, right? And that we don't really have to intervene in order to eradicate institutional racism. Uh, so that was one intervention, uh, you know, a more progressive intervention into the state of civil rights leadership. And the other intervention was an intervention uh, to have a more race conscious approach within the body of work known as critical legal studies. Uh, you know, that uh, was really trying to say, you know, while we agree with some of the advanced discussions, you know, about uh, the discourse of legitimating uh, law through a concept of rights, that um, we really need to also take into consideration the lived experiences of people of color in order to do justice, you know, to that framework for the racial justice struggle. So that's, yes, in a long way, uh, the kind of nuance that critical race theory was attempting to communicate that of course is entirely lost because it's just used as this battering ram against all racial and social justice movements. And, and, and to that end, I, I would imagine that um, in the time that, that, that you and I have spent thus far, there's probably been uh, more definitive discussion about what critical race theory is than the number of people who vote it on any given day. I mean, how how is that when you talk about the percentage of people who invoke critical race theory versus the percentage of people who can define it. I mean, I mean, isn't there, there's a huge gap. Yes, it is a huge gap. And I think that again, uh, if you look at any of the materials by the other side, you can see the bad faith in terms of how they're cramming the definition with all of these, as they put it, cultural insanities uh, that they know is not critical race theory and what it it stands for, but that's not the point. They just want to rally the masses and get mobs, literally mobs of angry parents before school boards um, as an organizing campaign in order to turn out the vote to take back, back Congress in 2022. And so it serves that purpose. So it's really, the question is really not I would urge what critical race theory is or isn't. It's what's behind all of these attacks against critical race theory at this moment. And if that's true, then it seems to me, these are my words, that uh, what you're really talking about is a campaign that's, that's really a disingenuous ruse. That's exactly right. And again, it's like, don't take my word for it. You can actually go to uh, videos of Christopher Rufo saying, um, I don't give a, you know, S, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> curse word uh, about what critical race theory is. And I don't even care to debate about it because it serves, uh, you know, the ends that he's using it for. You can go to, um, you can go to Steve Bannon's quote saying this, this is the tea party to the 10th power. Um, this isn't QAnon. This is mainstream suburban moms. And a lot of these people aren't Trump voters. 
right, in terms of the motor motives behind using critical race theory as this battering ram to plow over the electorate to prevail in the next elections. What, what is uh, the relationship between critical race theory and intersectionality, and, and would you define the latter for our listeners? Well, you know, I think that uh, there is a lot of uh, overlap between critical race theory and intersectionality theory, and I identify as both. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the founders who actually coined both critical race theory and intersectionality. And so, you know, one notion of, you know, just as I said, that critical race theory can be understood as this kind of inquiry about why racial inequality is so durable, even in the modern era. Um, And so intersectionality is also asking questions about how is it that the concerns, for example, of black women are often left out. You know, when we talk about civil rights generically or women's rights generically, and unless we have a specific space to consider, you know, the cumulative and synergistic interplay of multiple forms of subordination, we really are doing a disservice, you know, to the lives of people who um, see themselves at these intersections. Um, and I, if we're honest, and I'm thinking about the current debate, not not, not so much um, the discussions um, that happen in academia, but the current debate, are we not in the end uh, using critical race theory as a catch-all, but are we really talking about a threat to narrative or at least the existing narrative and what that may mean? You know, I think that's an excellent point. And so I think where we see that the people who are pushing the CRT disinformation were very troubled after, as I mentioned, the George Floyd protests and the uprising, Uh, you know, where you saw every race, you know, class zip code out there in the streets marching together and saying, you know, this is really a moment where we have to be introspective and try to solve this problem together, right? And so, if you think about it from a PR perspective uh, for the GOP, this is a very difficult challenge, is it not? <laughs> Especially after losing the razor thin Georgia election. So it's like, okay, well then how do we turn uh, what in most people's minds was a very good thing, you know, racial awakening, racial justice, racial reckoning into a very bad thing. And I think that's where the campaign was born. And that is to say the sort of logical syllogism that um, anti-racism equals racism, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, you know, the evil genius of the other side was to try to defame and distort critical race theory and anti-racism work generally to try to portray it as actual racism. Well, then, wow, I, 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 um, I have so much to ask you and and your last answer evokes so many questions I don't know how to ask you the next question but it it, it sort of seems to me if I'm hearing you correctly if we're not having an authentic conversation about critical race theory but one of narrative um, if we but if we maintain the existing paradigm where 
one one person says critical race theory is not this, but it's that, and then the other side is saying it's not. They're not even talking about critical race theory. I mean, isn't that advantage, you know, to the Steve Bannons of the world? Well, I think that polarizing the debate certainly is uh, to the advantage of people who oppose uh, racial justice work, right? And distortion and disinformation are to the advantage of people who oppose racial and social justice work. Uh, So that's for sure. Uh, I think on the positive side, there are still uh, many people devoted to these first principles of racial equality and justice. There are many savvy uh, people in the media uh, who understand that this is a very highly calibrated um, disinformation campaign with a threaded through vertical, well-funded right-wing infrastructure. Um, And so I think that those questions are uh, coming out, but you're right that they are polarized conversations. And when people admit that it's not even about the content, we can't really have, you know, like a normal, reasoned, appeals to logic kind of conversation, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, assuming momentarily that critical race theory, as you define it, became ubiquitous in the United States, um, who would be the beneficiaries and why? You know, Well, I would say that critical race theory, as I define it, did not become ubiquitous because it was a very specialized sort of advanced level of knowledge uh, practiced primarily in uh, legal scholarship and in law schools. But in terms of, let's say, the broader application and uh, the desire to bring and have that work travel into other spaces to emphasize the continuities with talking about eradicating systemic uh, racism. Um, You know, that's what I think many um, people are talking about with respect to uh, sort of the current challenge that we should all uh, face as Americans about what to do uh, about what happened to Breonna Taylor, what to do about what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, what to do about George Floyd if we don't want that to happen again. Um, And so I think that that is the proper focus, but other people don't want that focus. And that's why instead you get this disinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. Is is, is it simply a matter of uh, protecting narrative uh, uh, that when, when, when race is involved, that invokes irrational fears, um, that January 6th looks different to certain people than, let's say, the, the George, some of the George Floyd protests? I mean, is there anything we can pin down, or is it sort of all of the above? <laughs> you know, well, I think that there are um, deeply rooted um, ways of activating people's brains when it comes to, shall we say, racial fear mongering that goes very deep. Uh, and so I think people on the other side are very expert at manipulating that. Uh, but uh, as Kim Crenshaw said, this is no longer a dog whistle, it's a bullhorn. You know, it's very explicit, it's very upfront, and it's very scary to the people on the ground facing uh, the sort of mob mentality that's coming at them who are on the front lines of this. 
and so that is a definite challenge. But I, I, I do think that it's not at the level of narrative so much as it is uh, politics and sort of cynical strategy to define out of a robust multi, you know, multiracial democracy, uh, people of color who are increasingly becoming an emer- emerging majority. Uh, but when I when I think about you said that, that sort of larger approach that you talked about in, in, a, in the previous answer, there's not a seminal moment in American history that does not have a commentary, critique, or involvement of race, whether it's the the war for independence, the Civil War, wars, wars one and two, women's suffrage. I mean, you civil rights movement. You name it. There, there there's a racial component to all of America's seminal moments. So, why is this so difficult to comprehend in your view? Well, I think that the answer is is that we're actually not taught about any of this. And this is why these state bans on uh, the umbrella of critical race theory is so dangerous because it miseducates our students and our young people in terms of this history that we have with respect to the centrality of race, the contingency of race to all of our seemingly neutral institutions and even concepts. And so unless we begin to actually properly engage this history and our complete history with trusted educators uh, and professionals to guide young people through these conversations, uh, you know, we are going to allow that type of racial fear mongering to come to the forefront. But, and so I just wanna say for those people who maybe have heard about these controversies and the sort of parade of cultural insanities before them, that this is a highly orchestrated campaign of disinformation that you should not buy into, and that you should understand that if you marched, you know, for racial racial justice in the past, uh, or if you support, you know, the expanded curricula uh, to really look at, for example, the Tulsa massacre that has been hidden and censored. Uh, and that you see the benefits that your children have from learning alongside children from every race and zip code, that you should be with us and standing against this orchestrated disinformation campaign that is serving to eliminate the possibility for multiracial democracy. Mm. Professor Sumi Cho, uh, Thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much much appreciated your, your, your wise insight. Thank you so much. I so appreciate being here. Thank you for inviting me. Stay tuned as I speak with author Jonathan Rausch about his latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, on The Public Morality. Welcome back. What is truth? Is one of the moral and philosophical questions for the ages, something that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all grappled. It is the question that Pontius Pilate famously posed to Jesus. But this epistemological question has been of late bombarded by an onslaught of social media disinformation. Truth has become something that is individually wrapped. It fosters distrust of our public institutions and its officials. But author Jonathan Rausch, 
who The Guardian calls one of America's more thoughtful and rigorously honest public intellectuals, argues in his latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. The result is a crisis of democracy. We welcome him back to The Public Morality. Jonathan Rausch, welcome to The Public Morality. I'm happy to be here, Byron. Uh, first, I, I have good news and bad news. Let's start with the good news. Um, congratulations on this text. I think it is one of the most important books written this year. Well, thank you. That's quite a setup. What's the bad news? Okay, here's the bad news. I just completed an essay on the efficacy of, critical, of the critical race theory debate. And I stated that one side is either unable or, or, will, or unwilling to compete in the marketplace of ideas. And then I read your text. And so now I want to pull that out. <laughs> Talk about the difference between the marketplace of ideas and the constitution of knowledge as you define it. The constitution of knowledge, besides being the title of my book, is the system of rules and institutions that we rely on as a society to keep us moored to reality and to turn disagreements into facts. And it turns out it's really complicated. It turns out if all you have is a marketplace of ideas, you basically get a race to the bottom because you get what happens online, which is people believe what feels good to them, what their friends believe, and then they go into rabbit holes and form sects and insult each other and sometimes go to war. So you need more than the marketplace of ideas. You need free speech, but then you need this whole system of rules that say, well, look, if Byron wants to assert that something is true and John disagrees, they have to do some things. They're going to have to structure their arguments, present them in journals or newspapers or whatever. Uh, they're going to have to demonstrate to third parties. They know what they're doing. Lots of hoops to jump through. So that's the constitution of knowledge. It's, it's all the rules, all the hoops that keep us honest. Now, but one of my takeaways uh, is that you argue that we're up against um, a formidable opposition in that there are things happening now that didn't happen in this capacity, say, five years ago. I'm thinking cancel culture, trolling, and perhaps the most ominous may be uh, we're in a disinformation age. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. It's what we're under now is what I've started to think of as an epistemic attack. And that's from actors, some foreign, but mostly domestic, who for political reasons and sometimes for profit, want to overturn our knowledge-making system, confuse people about facts, substitute their own narratives, often do that in order to get political advantage. And you've mentioned the three that the book talks about the most. Um, one is what's called cancel culture, the term that didn't exist when I started the book, but that's using social coercion to silence and intimidate the other side of the argument. And we see some of that. You mentioned critical race theory. We see some of that in that debate. Another, which worries me more, I think it's the biggest threat right now, is the use of Russian style mass disinformation tactics against the American people by this will sound partisan. I've voted for many Republicans. I'm centered right. But by Donald Trump, his MAGA movement and Stop the Steal, the biggest disinformation campaign we have ever seen in America and the most successful. Um, discuss, if you would, the, the parallel track 
between the Constitution of Knowledge and the U.S. Constitution. Well, thanks, because that's there. There are a couple big ideas in my book, and that's one of them. The other is what we just talked about, which is we're being manipulated. Lots of information warfare. But the first big idea is that this isn't just a metaphor, a figure of speech, a literary device. The Constitution of Knowledge is not written down. And that's, of course, the big obvious difference with the U.S. Constitution. But it's doing the same type of thing in the same type of ways. The U.S. Constitution says, look, we're going to put an end to absolute dictatorship or monarchy on the one hand and constant civil war on the other by saying we're going to settle our political disputes by having some rules and some institutions. You're going to have to work through Congress and the courts and the states, and they're all going to have rules to follow. And if they don't follow those rules, then they can't do what they want to do. And that turns out to be the great political innovation of the last couple thousand years. So constitution of knowledge does the exact same thing. It says most human societies have settled their disputes by going to war, breaking up into sects and tribes, detaching themselves from reality, all kinds of stuff like that. It says instead of rulers, what if we have rules? What if we force people to go through a process of proposing their ideas, and then checking their ideas through this big social network, this big disembodied system of scientists and journalists and lawyers and government officials and, and lots of others. And that's the only way to make knowledge. There's no other way to do it. You can believe whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. But if you want to get in the textbooks, you're going to have to have the data, the experiments, the arguments. So it's doing the same thing. Constitution of knowledge is forcing people to persuade each other and compromise and jump through all these hoops to come to some kind of agreement. And it turns out it works amazingly well. You, you discuss in your book, and um, uh, I don't have it in front of me now, I, I made this note, and um, it, was, it was an example you gave, and uh, my apologies if I, if I missed the example up, but you, you, you said if you, if you had an individual sort of tinkering away in, in his or her basement, um, that person could either be Albert Einstein, who fundamentally change the world or some nameless person whom we never know. Either way, this in and of itself, this practice of isolation in and of itself is not the basis of knowledge. I don't know if I got that right, but you know, bail me out on that, please, John. John. You did get that right. Yeah. That's, uh, as I say in the book, imagine a kind of wild-haired young man scribbling away writing equations in his Garrett apartment in Bern, Switzerland, and I guess, what, 18, 1898 or something? So that could be Albert Einstein, the greatest physicist in history, revolutionizing science, or it could be a total crazy person writing complete garbage. And so where does knowledge come from? Does it come out of the head of any of one of us? No, it comes out of the interaction that we have when we take those scribblings out of that room and expose it to this process of this global process of checking, of structured back and forth, of other people trying to shoot it down, evaluating it. And the trick is the other people can't just be our friends, our religious group, our allies. It has to be anybody. The genius of the Constitution of Knowledge is it says, whatever you say, whatever I say, the way we have to show that has to work for anybody. The experiments have to be replicable. The arguments need to be reproducible. Someone in Swaziland needs to be able to look at what we're doing, find it comprehensible, confirm or disconfirm the result. 
That's where knowledge comes from. It comes out of this network, this glo amazing global network. Now millions and millions of minds and countless institutions that are all working every day to advance knowledge by checking each other. And, and this is, I would argue, Byron, this is the species transforming technology of humanity. Before this, human knowledge advanced virtually zero for 200,000 years. After the constitution of knowledge, we now make more knowledge every day, I would argue, than the whole first 200,000 years combined. And we put the shot in my arm that is protecting me from COVID right now. So why is that not an extension of the marketplace of ideas? Well, it is, it builds on the marketplace of ideas. But here's the problem with the marketplace of ideas metaphor. And I should say, I love it. I use it all the time. It's great as far as it goes. But every time I present it to undergraduates, they ask the same question, which is, so how do we know that the better ideas will prevail in the marketplace of ideas? And the standard answer to that is, well, you know, the better arguments stand the test of time. But that kind of assumes that the arguments are out there just having themselves. You know, the ideas are clashing in the ether somewhere and they automatically arise. And the problem with that is this system is not automatic. It depends on all of these institutions and rules, all of these experts, the journals, the newsrooms in which I was trained, um, the graduate seminars in which you were trained, uh, the academic journals, the peer reviewers, the editors, uh, in the intelligence community, the blue team, red team exercises, in the courts of law, you have to go to law school, you're going to have to learn to write briefs, cite evidence, make your claims, have them evaluated. That's the critical stuff. So it's the structure that you need to have what's basically a structured conflict. And these attackers that we talked about earlier, what they're going for, what they're trying to obliterate are those structures. They're trying to say, you can't trust any of these experts and institutions. The rules are all rigged. Believe QAnon instead. So, so has the constitution of knowledge, as, as you're defining it, has it been sitting under glass in the dungeon of antiquity with, with a sign reading, break the glass in case of emergency. And now here comes, you know, Jonathan Rouse saying, okay, here's the emergency, break the glass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. I, I, I detect that that's a, a uh, slightly facetious question that we both know yes. the answer. The truth is that this system has had major adversaries since day one for all kinds of reasons. One is that it's very counterintuitive. I mean, we'd rather believe our friends and what feels good than trust some you know, disembodied network of strangers. Another is if you're a dictator or a demagogue or you want to start a cult of personality, this system gets in your way because it keeps confronting you with unpleasant facts that you can't control. If you, you know, you're Donald Trump and you don't like the route of the hurricane, this system you know, doesn't let you change it, even if you take a Sharpie pen and try. So a lot of people have rebelled against this system and have been since the time of Galileo and John Locke, who, by the way, served in exile for five years for his trouble. So they're always attackers. These are just the latest attackers. Um, I tell people all the time, if, if you want to defend the system, we just have to recognize that it's the most successful, but also the most counterintuitive social system of all time. And we're just going to have to wake up every morning. And so will your children and their children and their children will have to wake up every morning and defend it from scratch. And we just have to be cheerful about that because we're actually we're doing 
we're doing pretty well in the long haul. Well, one of the things you talked about early on, I, I can't remember if it's chapter one or chapter two, but you, you sort of give this list of all the unconscious ways that we are biased on a daily basis. And, and when I look at that, when I read that and I look at the list that you put forth, it's, it's easier to, it's what's harder to, to embrace this constitution of knowledge that you're articulating than it is to be sort of, to gravitate organically to all these biases that, that, that we do on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. You know, the question isn't why sometimes human beings are biased and make systematic errors and get lost in mazes of unreality. The question is why we don't always do that. So we're, we're designed, cognitively speaking, to be pretty good at evaluating situations where there's immediate feedback and it's important to us personally. Like, is that a tiger or a breeze in the bush? Um, where is the next tribe camp? Stuff like that, we're good. Abstract questions. Things like, what is the cause of this disease which is laying us low in our community? Or which God is the true God that we should worship? Um, abstractor stuff, we're not good at at all. Because our brains are wired so that we believe things that enhance our status in our tribe and help us improve our self-esteem. And why shouldn't we? You know, in, in, the, in the evolutionary environment, if we get thrown out of our tribe, we die. So we're finely tuned to, to uh, detect what people in our community believe, to please them with our beliefs. We don't even do this consciously. These biases arise subconsciously, and they very easily spin into everybody confirming the same falsehood all the time. Uh, and this is human. This is not something that having a big brain, being super intelligent helps with. In fact, the evidence says that super smart people are really just better at rationalizing their biases uh, they're not better at actually perceiving what's right. And the constitution of knowledge is the one and only technology that freed us from all of that ignorance and blindness by forcing us to pit our biases against other people's biases. We don't see our own biases, but we do see other people's and they see ours. And this system says you're going to have this huge diversity of viewpoint. And then you're going, if you want to establish knowledge, you're going to have to expose whatever it is you believe to people with very different views, and they are going to shoot at you, metaphorically. They're going to shoot at your hypothesis. And you're going to have to put up with that, even though sometimes it's going to be emotionally painful, but it's worth it because we're all going to get knowledge and peace. Now, on, on top of all of that, um, you lead me to another question. In this, in this disinformation age that we're now living in, you know, the, the various platforms we can we consume, especially those that confirm what we already believe, they have they come with sort of an, an entrenched legitimacy, at least in our minds. And what would require in your context of work for us to change that existing narrative? That makes sense. Now we're, are we talking here about social media? I didn't quite understand. Yeah, what is it? So let's take, take, take let's take social media specifically. Yes. That that I I go to site A because site A reaffirm is what I already believe. And so I give that site some entrenched legitimacy. And I'm hearing you say that we've got to fight to legitimize this constitution of knowledge. Yes. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So one way to think about what social media did and what digital media broadly did, so you know, we need to include things like Google, is they returned us to a kind of epistemic state of nature. Because instead of saying there are going to have to be hoops that you jump through, so you're going to have to show things or uh, that, that what, what you want to say is, is, is accurate and true in order to get attention, they just rewarded attention. And what gets attention? Well, it's outrage and stuff that improves your self-esteem, conspiracy theories that explain the world so you don't have to believe you failed. You know, you can say it was some cabal of baby-eating Democrats. So left to our own devices, that's what we do. And the way social media was designed was to leave us to our own devices. Um, in fact, social media was designed to actually accelerate stuff that wasn't true because outrageous stuff, untrue stuff, is a lot cheaper to produce and, and stickier than truth. So this turned out to be social media could have been, you know, in principle, it was supposed to, to connect minds around the world and improve knowledge. Didn't work out that way because it's structured completely the wrong way for making knowledge. And the, the question now is, can it be restructured? Different rules, different designs, different community standards that will start rewarding people being fair and accurate instead of unfair and inaccurate. The book, the Constitution of Knowledge, a defense of truth. And we've been talking with its author and, and who's now a, become a friend of the public around that we've had him on several times. Thank you again, Jonathan Roush, for uh, sharing um, your wise counsel with us. Much appreciated and congratulations on the new text. Well, thank you. And it's just always a pleasure to be with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. Hey!